Let's open up to Matthew 27, because this is where I am. I'm a pastor. I'm going to preach. We're in the Word of God. We're looking at the crucifixion this morning. It's Good Friday on a Sunday. Next week is Easter in July. That's just how it's going to go right now. We can live that way. We can do that. We can read these passages even when it's not a particular holiday. When we left off with the last teaching, we've got Barabbas set free, this convicted criminal, Jesus taking his conviction in his place. And it's time for the moment of crucifixion, and Jesus is handed over to the Roman authorities to be tortured before he's going to be led away to the place where he will be crucified. Before the day is over, a lot of people are going to go from mocking Jesus, and you'll see that's a clear theme here. They're going to go from mocking him to considering the nature of his identity, given the strange things going on in the atmosphere. Let's read. It's an extended passage here. The verses will be on the screens. Matthew 27, verse 27. Then the governor's soldiers took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole company of soldiers around him. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him and then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on his head. They put a staff in his right hand. Then they knelt in front of him and mocked him. Hail, King of the Jews, they said. They spit on him and took the staff and struck him on the head again and again. After they'd mocked him, they put off the robe and put his own clothes on him. Then they led him away to crucify him. As they were going out, they met a man from Cyrene named Simon, and they forced him to carry the cross. They came to a place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. There they offered Jesus wine to drink mixed with gall, but after tasting it, he refused to drink it. When they had crucified him, they divided up his clothes by casting lots, and sitting down, they kept watch over him there. Above his head, they placed the written charge against him, this is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Two rebels were crucified with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, You who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross if you're the Son of God. In the same way, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders mocked him. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. He's the King of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him. For he said, I am the Son of God. In the same way, the rebels who were crucified with him also heaped insults on him. From noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over all the land. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing there heard this, they said, he's calling Elijah. Immediately, one of them ran and got a sponge. He filled it with wine vinegar, put it on a staff and offered it to Jesus to drink. The rest said, now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to save him. And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook, the rocks split, and the tombs broke open. The bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. They came out of the tombs after Jesus' resurrection and went to the holy city and appeared to many people. When the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and all that had happened, they were terrified and exclaimed, surely he was the Son of God. Many women were there watching from a distance. They had followed Jesus from Galilee to care for his needs. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of Zebedee's sons. As evening approached, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who had himself become a disciple of Jesus. Going to Pilate, he asked for Jesus' body, and Pilate ordered that it be given to him. Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen cloth, and placed it in his own new tomb that he had cut out of the rock. He rolled a big stone in front of the entrance to the tomb and went away. 
Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were sitting there opposite the tomb. You know, I don't have a very good memory. I have a horrible memory. I I don't have a lot of memories from my childhood. I don't have a lot of memories even from adulthood. I just, what's wrong with me? I don't have a lot of memories. There are a few memories I have, though, that I can just relive. It's like they're yesterday. It's like they're happening today. I can really step into those memories. Uh, One of those is from my wedding day. I can remember my wedding day at the reception. I can remember everybody dancing. So we had, you know, about 150 people at the wedding, and there was the dance floor and the tables, but the whole room became a dance floor. There was, it was over the dance floor. And just everybody was dancing. You know, all the odd aunts and uncles I got and everybody, you know, you're like, that person doesn't dance. You know, yeah, they dance. Yeah. I love all my aunts and uncles. They're odd like me. So I remember us jumping, you know, during some of the songs and the, the wooden floor joists were on a second floor. I can remember them bouncing like a spring, like a trampoline. You could feel the floor moving, which should be disconcerting. But it's my wedding day, so we're actually excited about it. I remember my wife standing up on the table, the, the, the table where we sit. What's that called? The sweetheart table? Okay, yeah, no. Uh, <laughs> wedding party table. That's the, that's the clinical way to say it. I like sweetheart table. So she gets up on there, and she's dancing, and I'm like, oh, my gosh. And I'm calling her down, and she's calling me up. And I went with her, and then we crowd surfed, you know, I, I can feel that. I, I can feel like looking around. It was all windows in the reception hall, and they were all fogged because of all the activity in the room. Like, I can remember that like yesterday. I can remember it like I'm there right now. And I want us to have that same sort of feeling every time we recall the cross, the crucifixion. I want us to be able to recall it not in a distant way. I want us to be able to recall it in a way where we're present. As I move through it, to be there, to see what the eyewitnesses saw, which is what Matthew is taking us through moment by moment. He's trying to place us in the scene so we feel what was going on. That's what I want for us every time we move through this account. It starts with Jesus being put before this group of the Roman guard. It's a large group. And they're out of the view of the Jewish people. So these Roman guards, most of which or all of which are from out of town. They're foreigners who are placed in sort of this odd post here. And they they probably have this aggression and frustration with the locals. Here they get to take out some of their aggression on one of the natives. You know, they've got some entertainment here beating up on Jesus. And it's all... It's all theater for them, right? You know, this sort of hardened view that they have, the dehumanizing work that they do. It reminds me of sort of the stories that you hear coming out of Ukraine, like the war atrocities, the war crimes, where human beings, how can they do this to each other? They just, they become so hardened by violence, they can, they can just treat people like they're worth nothing. That's how they treat Jesus. They put this scarlet old guard's robe on him, right? And they twist this crown of thorns and put it on his head, and they give him this stick that's his staff, right, as a ruler. And they kneel before him, hail the king of the Jews. And then they take turns hitting him with the stick. You know, they just think Jesus is nuts. They think he's, he's out of his mind with the claims that he has. It's like you run into some I don't know if you ever ran into somebody on the street or somewhere, and they, 
they're talking to you, and then they, you know, it's obvious that they don't seem like they're in their right mind, but apparently they were a co-founder of Microsoft. You know, and they tell you all about their accomplishments in their life, and you're going, <laughs> yeah, yeah, what a joke. And they're treating Jesus like he's a joke. Little do they know that they will one day, they have a day before them where they are going to kneel again before him. And he won't have in his hand a stick. Revelation chapter 12, verse 5 says he'll hold in his hand an iron scepter with which he'll rule the nations. As of this point, they appear to be in control. And after stripping Jesus down for the second time, they place him back in his clothes, preparing him for the journey to the place where they will execute him. When they start on the journey, they have to call someone, a passerby in to carry the crossbeam for Jesus to the place of execution, presumably because Jesus is not strong enough because of the torture he's undergone. They travel to a place that's not too far from the Roman governor's estate. It's Golgotha. It's the place of the skull. It's a place known where others would be executed. And they offer Jesus this wine mixed with gall, these bitter herbs, possibly a narcotic, some believe. And Jesus refuses it so that he can face his fate sober. After fixing him to the cross and raising him up, we hear that his clothes were divided, signifying that Jesus has been raised up on the cross in nakedness. This is how all criminals would be crucified by the Romans. Sitting down, the guards kept watch. It's not because they think Jesus or the other criminals are going to get away, but it's because this is a public spectacle. This is done in a public place. So other people can walk by and they can see this is what happens when you get on the wrong side of the Roman government. Above his head, they nail the charge against him, right? This false claim, supposedly, that Jesus has. This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. And I just think of that image, if like I'm standing before the cross, there's Jesus hanging on it, and above him, this is Jesus. It's an iconic image to picture in your mind. I was thinking about iconic images of famous people. Some of the most iconic images that we have of celebrities and famous people are our athletes, because, you know, the photographers are present, and you're catching them in something that's great to photograph, you know, some physical feat. You know, I think about Michael... Jordan, you know, dunking from the free throw line. You know, that classic poster on everyone's wall when I'm growing up, like, this is Michael Jordan. I think about Muhammad Ali. There's that photograph of him standing over the guy that he knocked down, right? He's got his mouth open. He's flexing his arm like this, just screaming in victory, right? This is Muhammad Ali. That's the picture I get. This is Jesus tortured, crucified, naked. All the people, all the people collectively in the next section begin to speak ill of this Jesus. And it's amazing how the commoners, the criminals, the teachers of the law and elders, they all get unified in their collective hate of Jesus. I mean, we know this to be true in our modern times, right? Hate can be such a powerful motivator for unity in an odd sense. The first group says in verse 40, you who are going to rebuild the temple in three days, save yourself, come down 
if you're the Son of God, and they're challenging his identity, just like we saw a year and a half ago when we started this series, and Jesus goes into the wilderness. What was Satan saying to him? Look, if you're the Son of God, you can turn these stones to bread. You're hungry, eat. If you're the Son of God, you could go to the top of the temple and jump off, and the angels would attend to you. You know, it's the same call for self-preservation. Look, if you're the Son of God, come on down. You don't have to go through this. But clearly you're not. The verbal assault continues with the leaders making light of his reputation as a healer in Galilee outside of Jerusalem. They say in verse 42, like, hey, you've heard the rumors about this guy. He saved others out in the rural area, but he can't even save himself. You know, they're smearing all that he'd done in the past. They're slandering all his work up to that present moment. They say, if you come down, then we'll believe in you. And I just think, how much did that hurt for Jesus? He wanted so badly for them to believe and so be saved. And here all they had were mocking replies. I think the worst, though, the deepest salt in the wound is covered there in 43. They say, he trusts God. Well, if God wants him, God will save him. That word for want, it could be translated desire, to, to wish for, to love. Uh, he trusts God. If God loves him, God will save him. Consider that at the end of this road of suffering that Jesus has undertaken, that as he's going through all this excruciating torture, that's where we get the word excruciating, by the way, is from crucifixion. As he's going through all this excruciating pain, he has to hear this backdrop, all these voices questioning his core identity, slandering all the work that he's done in his life, and questioning if God even wants anything to do with him. It hits on every level. And it's spoken by every person. From the foreigners and Romans, to his own people, to the leaders, and his followers. Where was Peter to carry Jesus' crossbeam for him? He said, I'll go to the death for you. He wasn't there to carry the crossbeam. Where's James and John? They said, we want to be on your right and your left. Jesus said, can you drink the cup I'm going to drink? They said, yeah, we can drink the cup. Where are they to his right and to his left? They're nowhere to be found. He's abandoned by all. In the absence of people's acknowledgement, creation begins to mourn. In verse 45, it tells us the sky was darkened prior to Jesus' death. In one cry, we hear the desolation of Jesus, who quoting Psalm 22. Go to Psalm 22 to understand the psyche of Jesus in these moments. He questions his God as having forsaken him. And he receives in that moment the wrath of of God against all sin. This isn't a cry of resignation like most would breathe when dying on a cross. It was a cry of passion which preceded one final loud cry where he releases his spirit and breathes his last. And the onlookers between the darkening sky, the mood in the air, the behavior of Jesus, the earthquake, it causes them to take notice and they're terrorized. They say, surely... This was the Son of God. Other signs appear. The tombs of the dead breaking open with the righteous Jews. The tearing of the temple curtain from top to bottom. This is a sign that the old age is being done away with and the new dawn of the church and resurrection is coming. There's so much here in this scene around the cross. And as I reflect on this scene, and I've been reflecting on it so deeply this last week, I want to look at the cross through these two ideas. The first of all, the cross, 
for us is a symbol of salvation. And that second of all, the cross for us as Christians is a symbol of our sanctification. Let's speak to the first reality, that the cross is a symbol of salvation. The Bible tells us the wages of sin is death. The payment for our sin is death. That's what we get in exchange for sin. Your greed and my greed, your lust and my lust, your covetousness, your slander and my slander and my covetousness, your hatred and my hatred, what we get paid for that, the wages for that sin and wrongdoing is death. And Jesus, the Word, God Himself puts on flesh and absorbs that cost. He takes the payment that was due to every single one of us. And I imagine that as He's there feeling forsaken, that Jesus is capable of understanding the full breadth of sin, past, present, and future. I think He's capable of seeing everything as He hangs there. The wars that would take place, the wars that had been done before. The murders that would take place, the murders that had been done before. The infidelities. The lies. And he's got it all upon his shoulders. And he's absorbing all of it so that it might be lifted off our shoulders. So I would say to you this morning, If you have not had that burden lifted from your shoulders, place your faith and trust in Christ today and experience the forgiveness for your sin. There is no other means by which that wrongdoing can be lifted from you save for the work of Christ. But for every single one of us who's believed, you know, I've believed for 20 years. I accepted the cross as my salvation, but I never for me wanted to become tired and trite. I need the cross to feel like it's present before me, like, like my wedding day, like I talked to you guys about. Like I, I, want to, I want to feel it in the same way that I felt it those 20 years ago when those burdens were released from me. I need to observe these events like the women Observe these events that Matthew talks about in verse 56. He throws that in there. He says, well, guess what? Everybody did abandon Jesus except we've got this group of women who've been caring for his needs, who are right there on the fringe seeing everything happen. I want to see it all happen. I want to absorb it the same way that they were. You know, I thought of this analogy this week as I was considering, you know, the stars. It's so fascinating. Science will tell us that like The stars are thousands of light years away, and the things that we observe in the night sky, it takes thousands of years for those things to get to us. They've already occurred, but we experience them in the present, and it's a marvelous thing. Those events that we're seeing have long gone away, but we can't see it because it's just taking that long for the light to hit us. And I marvel at the sky, you know, what happened in the past that I'm experiencing in the present But I want to have that same awe and worship when I look into the Scriptures. And it's like these things happened 2,000 years ago. But as I'm sitting with the Scriptures, it's like this light that's coming from 2,000 years ago. I know it happened, but I want to know it in the present. I want to know it now. And I've been so moved this week. We were sitting at teaching team. I'm reading the passage for the first time. You know, I'm just leading a meeting, and I'm I'm having to gain my composure 
as I'm reading it, even, even this morning, especially here at Second Service, I'm reading it again. I'm thinking, I've got I've to focus. I haven't even started yet. I've got to get through this. I've got to speak what happened. And I can feel it, and I've been longing this week, and I don't know how to do it. I don't know how to put you in that scene. I don't know how to make it present for you just to pray to God that by His Spirit, He would place you in that scene. That you and I would have the same impulse of worship and gratitude that Joseph of Arimathea had. Like the women who were viewing and didn't leave. Like Joseph. You think about the treatment of Jesus' body. The wretched treatment. The abuse he underwent. The amount of times he was dressed and undressed and left in his nakedness. And then here is a disciple of Jesus who sees the worth of Jesus' body, beaten and broken as it is, and he takes a clean linen cloth and wraps the body of Jesus in it. And that's the same place I want us to get to as we reflect on this passage, that we have that impulse to worship and to honor and show dignity to one who received none in these moments. The cross is a symbol of our salvation. But that is not enough. It is also a symbol of our sanctification. I I didn't want to use that word because it's a very religious sounding word, a very theological sounding word. What does it mean? Sanctification is the process. It's everything following salvation. It's the process that we go through as Christians whereby the grace of God, God is at work in us to conform our heart and mind and attitudes and desires into the image of His Son, Jesus. To move us from the concerns of the world to increasingly, as we get older and we mature as His disciples, we have increasingly the concerns of God chiefly on our minds. And that's the process that we should be called into as we consider the cross. Though a lot of people neglect that. Maybe they get to that first stage. They get to a place of worship and appreciation. They say, oh, thank you, Jesus, for winning me my salvation through what you did. But you can't divorce the cross and salvation from sanctification. That's everything that's going to come after. Jesus linked it to Himself. If we rewind to Matthew chapter 16, Jesus predicts everything that we read about this morning. He predicts everything that He's going to undergo. He does it multiple times. But then He links it to this statement, Matthew chapter 16, verse 24. Whoever wants to be My disciple has to take up their cross and follow after me. You've got to do the same as me. You've got to endure dehumanizing behavior in this world. You've got to be forsaken. You've got to be rejected. You've got to experience pain. You've got to absorb hate. And Lord knows we have enough of that in this world today in order to bear life in the giving of yourself in love. Remember at first when Peter heard the prediction of what Jesus would undergo, when Peter heard about what would take place in our reading today. Do you remember what he said? He said, no, never. This will never happen to you, Jesus. He was thinking about self-preservation rather than self-giving love. And Jesus called him what? Satan. Because that was Satan's temptation in the wilderness. You're going to serve yourself with this life that you have. You're going to have all the kingdoms of the world, Jesus. And he said, no. And then Peter said, you're not going to undergo harm. And he said, no. And then they're all mocking him while he's on the cross saying, if you're the Son of God, you'll come down. And then we'll believe in you. And he says, no. And he tells Peter, 
You have in mind the concerns of man. You do not have in mind the concerns of God. This is to be us ever increasingly in life, putting our minds in this place of receiving the concerns of God. Everybody's speaking to Jesus. Everyone has all these ideas. There's so much noise around him as we read what's happening here. And he's just silently guided by the Father. He had one thing in mind, the concerns of his Father in heaven. I've been thinking about how do we have the concerns of our Father in heaven? How do we take up our cross on a daily basis? What does this look like for us? And I've been thinking about prayer as a means of that and how prayer is like a conversation. Can you have five conversations at one time? Can you have two conversations at one time? No. How many conversations can you have at one time? One. You can't have two conversations. My kids, I have five kids. They challenge me to have five conversations at one time. It's the most unnerving thing that happens in my life when they're all speaking over each other. And guess what? When I try to listen to all five, I can't hear one of them. I can't even have one conversation. I'm only capable of one conversation at a time. Jesus had all that noise, and he could block it all out, and he could listen for one voice, and that was the concerns of God. And we, too, have presented before us all the time, here's the concerns of the world. Here's what men and women think about Here's what I think. Here's what I'd like to see happen. And we can't hear God unless we're listening to Him and blocking out the other voices. That's when we get filled with the concerns of God. Jesus played it out in Matthew 16. He said, guys, what if you did it all? What if you, you, you received the whole world? What if you accepted the offer of Satan? You get all the kingdoms. You get all the power. You get all the authority and you get all the control. Yes, but you lose your soul in the process. What if you follow everybody's ideas? What if you follow your own ideas? But at the end of the day, you lose your soul in the process. He says, block out those voices. Think only of my concerns. It's a cross, though, that you'll end up carrying. And prepare to be mocked for carrying it in this life. If you pick up your cross in this world, if you fill yourself with the concerns of God, you will be mocked for loving your enemy. In this society right now, if you genuinely love your enemy, you will be mocked for loving your enemy. You will be mocked for trusting God in a time where there's a lot of fear and anxiety in the world. People will look at you and say, as they've said to me many times, why aren't you more wound up? Why aren't you more concerned? Why aren't you more angry? Does that mean you don't care? You'll be mocked for trusting and having confidence and peace in a world of fear and anxiety. You'll be mocked. People will say, you're wasting your life. You're wasting your time as you give yourself to God-honoring causes that may come with no earthly success. Prepare to be mocked for taking up a cross. And in my experience, prepare to be mocked by both Christians and non-Christians alike. But Jesus says in Matthew chapter 16, at the end of the day, you may be mocked, but I will reward you when I come in the glory of my Father's angels. The cross is our salvation. It's our sanctification. How can I ground this in our everyday experience? Let me tell one quick story to finish out. An example of what this means in practice. 
my wife and I were heavily demeaned by some people in our life. I was spoken to in a hostile way that, and I've been spoken to in a lot of hostile ways, but in a way that I'd never experienced in person. I mean, it was just, it was, it was pretty vile. It was, it was, it was frightening, and I, and I don't personalize it, or I work not to personalize it, because, you know, the sentence didn't fit the crime. We got a lot going on beneath the surface, but it was jarring, this experience, and you know, we were both rattled from it. We're talking about it for a few days, just like, I can't shake this interaction I had. And uh, I was coming home from work, long day, exhausted. And I pull up to my house, and my wife is ministering to those people in my front yard. And I know immediately she's loving on them, she's looking past their offense. She's serving them. She's showing them compassion. And what's my feeling? Oh, no. This is the last thing I want. This is the last thing I wanted to see when I came home after a long day are these people in my space. She had in mind the concerns of God. I had in mind the concerns of man, my own self-preservation. She's thinking... They know we're Christian. This is an opportunity to show God's grace and compassion. This is an opportunity to witness. This is an opportunity for these people to maybe one day, in the distant future possibly, that they might experience salvation. And I'm not going to miss it. And I see a crossbeam on her. And i got to stop listening to myself. And i got to listen to God through the example of my wife. Take a deep breath, put a cross beam on, and go in there and serve them as well. It's a small thing, but that's every single day and every single opportunity. That's what it means to conform to the example of Christ and the cross. And I hope that in 20 years, I'd have the instinct that my wife already has to bear that burden. The cross is a symbol of our salvation. It's a symbol of our sanctification. I want us to move to a time of worship and prayer. I'm hoping that this will be a moment of salvation for some. I'm hoping and praying that this will be a moment of experiencing the reality of the cross afresh for many. I'm hoping that the Lord is going to reorder your desires and your attitudes as you think about what it means to follow in the path that he walked. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, first, I'm praying for those who have not trusted in you for salvation, that they would choose to open their heart to you this morning. Lord, as you died for those who mocked you, you long so much that they'd have their burdens released, that they could be free of the power of sin, that they could be free of their wrongdoing, the wrongdoing that had been done to them, the false identities and labels that they were living with. Lord, the past that was holding them down, the culture that was holding them back, you long to free them from all of it through trusting you. Lord, would, would there be 
individuals in here this morning who trust in you right now, who say, take my sin, take my wrongdoing, take the distance that I have from you and close that gap. Lord, would you pour out your Holy Spirit, your very presence into the lives of people this morning, that they would feel the lightness on their shoulders, that they would hear your voice begin to speak different words about who they are and who they will be, that they're no longer marked by what they've done, but they're marked by what you did, Jesus, on the cross, that they are your son or daughter through faith in you, that you have a vision, good works prepared in advance for them to do that they get to live into after this morning. Lord, let them not leave here without having their burdens released. So Lord, I'm praying for salvation. If that's you, if that's that's a decision you've never made, I, I implore you, use this moment. Give the Lord your heart. Ask for him to remove your sin. He's the only means by which you could be bridged back to God in perfect union for all time. And Lord, for all of us, would we behold you in what you've done? Would we be present as we worship? Could we see you on the cross? This is Jesus. He's the king, not just of the Jews. He's the king of the universe. He's the king of the world, the king of heaven. Lord, would we treat you with the dignity and honor that you're due with our words, with our hearts. Lord, would you shape our hearts as we submit them before you this morning in awe and gratitude and wonder.